0: Arrested for causing riot near Masjid Jamek. Later charged for preaching the gospel to the Chief Justice during court session. What were you thinking, Tim? You are out of your mind. I know it must be the baby, right? Wait till you get two. Frankly, it is not that difficult to consider Paul mad. This morning, we will look at another episode involving Paul. We will examine again if Paul is really mad. The episode involves a rough voyage, a very, very long voyage. It took Paul 66 verses to get from Caesarea to Rome. This is very long by X standard. Earlier in the chapter, earlier in the book, Paul travelled much faster. It only took him three verses to move from Essos to Meletus. Luke reported, and sailing from Essos, we came the following day to opposite Chios. The next day we touched Samos, and the next day after we went to Meletus. Short and sweet. Whereas here in chapter 27, we have this lee and that lee, this wind and that wind, we have the rudders, the ropes, the anchors, we have almost everything except the ship's loo was being mentioned. So naturally, we ask, why? Why so much details for such a short journey? Well, I think it is simply because Luke himself was involved in the voyage. Verse 1 says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, Luke was with Paul. Vivian, my wife, was once shipwrecked in the Edelman Sea, near to Pepe Island. Do you want to hear the story? Well, she was out in the sea when the boat leaked. It eventually capsized and left her stranded. That's it. Ask Vivian. I bet you get a juicier story. Vivian, earlier this week, as we have said, just gave birth to a baby boy. Do you want to hear the story? Well, she felt some pain. I drove her to the hospital. The baby eventually popped out in the morning. That's it. <laughs> Ask Vivian. I bet you'll get a much, much juicier story. My point is, Liu was personally involved in this life-threatening voyage. A voyage that nearly took his life A perfect storm, a near-death experience. Have you ever in your life that you almost died and then you leave to tell the story? That will be the mood Luke wants us to read this episode. That is why he's giving us the details. So as we go through the details of the journey, you can't treat it as your best-selling page-turner-novel. But you have to treat it as though a Japanese tsunami survival is telling you his story on a documentary. Walk with Luke where he walked. Hear him whispering to you in your ears. Did you know how high the waves were? Did you know that we almost died? Well, let's take a look. As early as verse 7, we were already experiencing increasing weather problems. Paul's uh, Luke said, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the Lee of Crete of Salmon, coasting along it with difficulty we came to a place called Fair Heavens. And on top of the danger that Luke is facing due to bad weather, guess what? Some bad sailors decided to make some bad decisions to make it worse. Verse 9. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceived that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid no attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Having been out in the sea for a while now, Luke ought to be very nervous. He noted that even the fast was already over. That is another way of saying, come on guys, we have reached a period in the year when everyone knows how dangerous it is to be out in the sea. It is the monsoon season. No one sails in these months. It is just simply suicidal. And how did the centurion respond to Paul's warning? He simply ignored him. And in the end, What did they decide to do? Take a look at verse 12. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter day, winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, the harbour of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. They left it to a decision based on majority, a decision based on chance that somehow they might survive. If you were Luke, how nervous would you be on such a ship? And just when Luke thought that things might be getting a bit better, verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to shore. But verse 14, But soon... A tempestuous wind called the North struck down from the land and the ship was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Corder, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, we used the pots to undergrip the ship, then fearing that they would run aground on the surface. Stri- they lowered the gear and thus They were driven along. Scenes with a violently storm tossed. They began the next day to Chester, Chicago. And in verse twenty, Luke makes sure that we understand that things really have hit rock bottom. Verse twenty, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Well, I'm no sailor, but I do have accumulative credentials that should qualify me to assure you that what Luke is describing here is of extreme danger. I learned to drive a boat before I learned to drive a car. My father-in-law was a sailor, my wife is a shipwreck survivor. And if that's still not enough for you, my favorite childhood cartoon was Popeye. But seriously, seriously, Luke say in verse 20, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Have you ever f- finally gave up hope of survival in your life? Imagine how extreme the circumstance must have been. Then verse 21, it tells us further how bad it was. They lost appetite. They were going to die, so why bother to eat? And then verse 41, when they finally near land, what happened? They struck a reef, the vessel went aground, and the stern broken up by the surf. And again, just when Luke thought that the crisis was finally miraculously over, that he survived the perfect storm, verse 42. Now the soldiers are planning to kill him. This is no ordinary life situation that Luke is going through. It is probably ranked as the most memorable, unforgettable journey in Luke's life. If he's alive today, he will surely be referred to a post-traumatic Psychiatrist. Friends, do you see the extreme mity of the circumstance? How bad it was? For it must be in the context of such an extreme real-life situation, just as Luke has painfully detailed for us in 66 verses, that we must read Paul's responses. In the same life crisis. Let me repeat that. For it must be in the context of such an extreme real-life situation that we must read Paul's response to the same life crisis. How did Paul react? Verse 10, Paul said, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship. But of our lives. Paul is an experienced traveler himself. He's well aware of how life threatening the crisis he was in. Now, listen to what Paul said and tell me you honestly still don't think that Paul is mad in light of the kind of crisis that we are talking about. Verse 33. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from your head as any of you, of you." And when he had said these things, he told the bread, give thanks to God in the present bowl, he broke it and began to eat. Is Paul for real? Eat? Which godly planet did Paul come from? When did he find the appetite to eat? Do you know, Paul, that you will be eaten alive very soon by the shark yourself? Did I just ask if Paul is mad? If you have been rescued from a mall that seized you and dragged you and still wanted to kill you, will you ask for the permission to evangelize to them again, immediately? I wouldn't, but Paul did. If you were being summoned before the Sultan, will you try to evangelize him in front of all his lieutenants and at the same time scheming at the back of your head eventually you want to evangelize the DYMM as well? I wouldn't. Paul did. If you were in the middle of a life-threatening crisis like a shipwreck where your own life is in danger, what would be first on your mind? For me, it would be me. Then my family. Then back to me again. (laughs) By my standard, Paul is mad. Mad in a godly sense, of course, but nevertheless, mad. He was madly focused on gospel work, gospel living regardless of what the situation he was in. In the middle of a life-threatening voyage, in the face of death, when his aspirations for preaching in Rome vanished, he remained firmly unshaken. Paul just seeked to encourage encourage the hopeless, reminding them of the certainty of God's promise. He took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all he broke it and began to eat. He just continued living his everyday Christian life, bearing witness to the gospel. Those of us who have been following Paul throughout the series, this is no surprise, isn't it? There seems to be a kind of firmness in Paul all the time whether in jail or out of jail, whether in Jerusalem or in Athens, whether facing governors or kings. He was not tossed through and fro by different life situations that come his way. Today's episode is there just to show us that not even an extreme situation like the shipwreck can distract him. So the question is, how is that possible? How is that possible? How is it possible that Paul can remain so firm in the fiercest drought and storm in life? People are generally shaped and relieved by the reality that we understand. Samantha, my first daughter, two and a half now, recently learned of the reality that unlike fish, human beings don't have gills and therefore can't breathe underwater. She just discovered this reality. She choked a few times, but she discovered it eventually. So now she lives or swims by this reality. She makes sure that the distance is achievable before she dives in and swims for it. Our passage today reveals two realities that Paul understood. Two realities which he anchors his life on. Two realities that help him to know what to live for, what is his purpose in life, where is his hope, his joy, his meaning. The first reality, reality anchor number one, is found in verses 21 to 26. But let us first remember what happened in verse 20. It was the climax of the crisis. Luke reported to us when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. At the lowest point of the entire crisis, how did Paul respond? Verse 21. Since they had, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood among them and said, Man, you shall listen to me and not have sailed, set sail from Crete and incur this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the sheep. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship, And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But you must run aground on some island. The key verse is, verse 25. Highlighted. Circle it, memorize it. Paul said in verse 25, So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The key phrase is, it will be exactly as I have been told. Friends, this reveals a very profoundly fundamental reality about God which Paul understood. Put simply, whatever God said, it can happen and it will happen exactly as he had said. Brothers and sisters, this is the God that you and I worship. Since the Old Testament time, This is what distinguished God from all other false gods. Let me read to you again from Isaiah 41 which was read to us. Here, the Christian God, Yahweh, openly challenged all other false gods. He said, saying to the idols, Submit your case, say the Lord, present your arguments, say Jacob's king. Let them come and tell us what will happen. Tell us the past events so that we may reflect on it and know the outcome. Or tell us the future. Tell us the coming events, then we will know that you are God. Indeed, do something, anything, good or bad. Then we will be in awe and perceive. Look, you are nothing and your work is worthless. Anyone who chooses you is detestable. I have raised up one from the north and he has come, one from the east who invokes my name. He will march over rulers as if they were mud, like a potter he treads the clay. Who who told about this from the beginning so that we might know and from time past so that he might say he is right. No one announced it, no one told it, no one heard my words. I, Yahweh, I was the first to say to Zion, look, here they are, and I gave a herald of good news to Jerusalem. Our God is a God who said, let there be light, and there was light. He said to Adam and Eve, you will surely die. And they died. He said, I will come down to deliver my people out of Egypt. And they were delivered. And he said, I will raise up Cyrus. Before there was Cyrus, and the Persian Empire was raised. Things happened exactly the way that he said. God said he will lay on his servant the iniquity of all who like sheep, have gone astray. And he did, on Calvary. Friends, whatever God said will happen exactly as he has said. Do you believe that? I received an email recently from friends who is pastoring a church in Singapore. Let me read to you a bit of what they wrote. They said, We are doing well by God's grace, but there are always ongoing challenges. We are feeling much more at home, at church after two years there. And everything, everything God told us about his work there has been true. That it would be hard, but that he would strengthen us. So it is daily walking by faith and not by sight that we have been happy and we have been happy. Things happen exactly the way that God has told us. So friends, how is it possible that Paul can remain firm through the fiercest drought and storm? How could he be so convicted that unless those men stay in the sheep, they cannot be saved? Well, it is the same reason, isn't it? Why you and I as Christians can sing, I will trust you in the darkness. Yes, I will trust you in the darkness Once again, yes, I will trust you in the darkness, oh my friend. It is because Paul's God, our God, is a God who has spoken and acted exactly as he has spoken. And that's why we can trust him. Though Paul was in prison, though he was mocked and attacked, though various life situations just coming one after another, Paul can remain firm through the fiercest drought and storm. So can we as Christians. For our future is certain, our future is secure in the sovereign God, a faithful God who has spoken to us. Let's now take a look at Reality Anchor number 2 in chapter 28. Verse 1 let me read. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Mortar. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he, was, though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to leave. He, however, shook off this creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited for a long time and saw so no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said that he was God. Think about it, if you were on Malta Island that night or that day, what do you see? Or in other words, how do you interpret what you see on Malta Island? It may seem to be a strange and unfit story on the first read, but I think Luke reports it to us here to help us grasp a fundamental reality about Paul's world and about our world. And the reality is, it is simply a lost world. A world that swings from being convinced that Paul was a murderer on one day, to Paul being a god on the same day. A world that do not know God, and relies only on superstition and guesses. When we are anchored back to reality by the Gospel, God helps us to see the world for the way that it truly really is. We see the lost. We see a world claiming to be wise, but they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man. They serve creature rather than creator. And when Paul saw the world for what it is, he cannot but live for the kingdom. For he understood that now is the moment, the day of salvation. This is the hour to be serving the king, bearing the gospel, going to the nations. Now is the time for our tribute to bring. Paul understood that the world is a world that is lost. Let me draw to a close. question is, is Paul mad? Well, he is. He is madly clear about the reality concerning God and concerning our world. He is madly focused. He is madly kingdom-minded, regardless of what comes may whether in jail or out of jail, whether facing governors or kings or shipwreck, he is focused. But friends, we regard Paul as mad because in our sinfulness, we are not mad. Mad people don't call mad people mad. It's because we are not mad, we think that Paul is mad. In our sinfulness, We are not mad. We are not madly kingdom minded people. We are not madly living for the kingdom. But, friends, the good news is unlike us, the perfect man, Jesus, he lived resolutely for the kingdom. Jesus was fully and perfectly kingdom minded. For Jesus knew how true God is to his word. How faithful God is. For Jesus knew how lost the world is. For he knew there was nothing better to live for but for the kingdom. So friends, we now have hope. We now have a purpose in life. We now have joy and meaning that none can surpass. Why? Because... Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. He died the perfect death that you and I deserve to die for not being madly kingdom-minded. He died for our sins and so we now have hope in Christ. So let us strive, strive madly for the kingdom to come. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was fully and perfectly kingdom-minded. He was the perfect man that all man and all humanity failed to be. And thank you that by his perfect life and his death, we can be counted among those who are righteous. Not because of what we do, but because of what He has done. So we pray, Father God, that by the help of Your Holy Spirit in our life, You may open our eyes and our minds to see the reality of who You are, that the future before us, our destiny, will happen exactly the way that You have said. Jesus will return. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Help us to see the reality of our lost world. A world without you, a world ignoring you. And help us, Lord, by your spirit to strive for the kingdom to come, to preach the good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.